if you were to use a foreign company were to operate in China, use this digital currency, have those digital currency wallets, it probably would be very easy for China at the flip of a switch to cut off your transactions, you know, to or to modulate your transactions, to like restrict your wallets in a way that it can't do as easily in our sort of disjointed financial system and fintech system today. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Zach. With China on its way to developing a digitized central bank currency and the ease with which new cryptocurrencies are created today, we may now be entering a new era of national digital currencies. But is the United States prepared for this new era? In this episode, we will discuss the motivations as well as the security and economic implications of China's push towards digitizing the renminbi. We will also examine how the U.S. should react in order to protect its economic advantage and continue to track and prevent illicit financial flows. Joining us today is Mr. Yaya Fanuzi. Yaya Fanuzi is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS. His research focuses on national security implications of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. Yaya spent seven years as both an economic and counterterrorism analyst in the CIA, where he regularly briefed federal law enforcement, U.S. military personnel, and White House-level policymakers, including President George W. Bush, whom he personally briefed on terrorism threats. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Mr. Fanuzi, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. We're currently witnessing a growing cryptocurrency market with countries, including China, looking to develop a digital or digitized national currency. So to kind of start us off on the podcast, can you briefly explain what exactly cryptocurrencies and digital currencies are? Are they the same thing? And are they distinct from something else called central bank digital currencies? So we should think about cryptocurrencies or digital currencies as a digital form of value. So typically when you have value in the internet, it's very difficult to um, to transfer it without an intermediary, right? Most digital data, right, you have when you send it across the internet, you simply just copy the file and boop, there it is. You copy files, but you can't do that with money value, right? If you just copy money and send it, you would still have the money that you'd be sending people. So uh, in order to solve that problem, there was this invention, this this famous, now famous or infamous invention called Bitcoin. Bitcoin was this protocol that allows a person to send value over the internet through this real complicated, quirky system that I'm not going to get into. But basically, it allows you to have digital value. It's a sort of independent protocol. It's not owned by anyone. It's uh, decentralized. And so now you have these things called cryptocurrencies. Some people would say digital currencies. But cryptocurrencies are understood to be these independent protocols of digital value. That really differs from central bank digital currencies. In fact, some, would pe- some people would say it's, it's, the, ob- it's the, um, the opposite because central bank digital currencies are an attempt by central banks. So these are governments around the world. They're, they're banks, they're central banks. They're an attempt to come up with a digitized form of their national money. 
So um, this is what you have happening, but it's a different phenomenon because it's a specific entity like a nation um, um, developing the money. It's not independent, decentralized, but central bank digital currencies right now are pretty much in exploration mode. You don't have a lot of them. All you pretty much have are mostly central banks researching it, contemplating it, piloting it, piloting uh, a CBDC. And you do have a, like a, some small examples of companies that have sort of have, have launched it, but it's an ongoing thing in progress. So kind of to clarify before we move on, how is central bank digital currency different from, say, online banking practically or like in theory um, from, you know, having our currency, quote unquote, digitized uh, online? That's a very, very important point. So. Digital money as it exists today, like well, online banking, Venmo, even PayPal, when you're transacting with that, you're not dealing with central bank money. Let me explain what I mean. When you send someone a payment via Venmo or even your Wells Fargo Bank of America account, that financial institution, basically, that you have a, um, they have a liability with you, if I can get a little you know, somewhat uh, you know, technical there. But basically what it means is that you're moving commercial money. You're moving, um, you're moving an asset that you have with that, that financial institution. It's not like you have this digital dollar and that you're sending the digital dollar. No, pretty much your account, your financial institution is talking to another financial institution. So the online money that we have is pretty much the money of these financial intermediaries. Maybe I shouldn't say money, but it's transactions between the financial inter intermediaries. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So you're not moving an actual dollar. You're moving the obligation that that bank has with you to another institution, and then it goes to that, the, the obligation to that other person. So there's this, this sort of layer of, uh, of an intermediary that allows us to do digital transactions. So this differs from what, in theory, a central bank digital currency would mean. A central bank digital currency would be if you sort of logged in and the actual unit of dollar or whatever currency that you moved was a digit something um, digitally owned by the central bank, right? So that it is specifically, you're, you're really transacting in central bank money. You're not necessarily transacting in the asset of the financial uh, intermediary. So, you know, I don't know if that's, is that clear? Do I need to... Yeah, no, I think clear. that clarified things a lot. Yeah. Okay. 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 Great. Yeah. And then I guess just moving on before we dig dive more deeply into China, um, we also know that other uh, geopolitical adversaries, including, say, Venezuela, have also signaled plans to create their own virtual currency. So by the sound of that, is it difficult for countries to digitize their currencies or what kind of process do they have to go through? Well, digitizing a currency is uh, a pretty broad idea. It sort of depends because it depends on what route they're taking. So, you know, some people would say um, that right now you're just talking about an era where you have different competing digital money formats, you know, different formats of digital money. So Venezuela, this was a few years ago, but Venezuela sort of signaled that they were going to create a cryptocurrency. And so that is in the cryptocurrency box, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a CBDC. I mean, it, it, all that really was, 
honestly, it was really more propaganda than anything because I, I followed that issue when they were when they were talking about it, and it never really got off the ground because it it it, it wasn't really a transparent sort of thing. I mean, they created this token, they they got this uh, you know startup firm to kind of design something, but they didn't really build any infrastructure around it. So it was really more of a it was really more of a, pre, uh, a, a PR game, really. It was to try to to show that the, that they would have an alternative way to move money, but it never really never really worked. But that was a few years ago. I mean, what's happening now is a little bit different. <coughs> Excuse me, because back then Venezuela was just sort of using some of the um, open source blockchain software that was out there, where you can create a token. Because honestly, um, you know, Juliet, now anyone can create a cryptocurrency almost. I mean, you, you just get, you know, maybe a little basic programming knowledge and a YouTube video. And not even that, you could probably deploy a new, you know, Julia token or, or Hopkins, uh, Hopkins uh, token on, Ether on the Ethereum blockchain. You could create it. So that's kind of what Venezuela was doing. They were just creating some sort of little token. What's happening now with other countries, and we can get into China, is much more involved because most countries don't want to put their national currency on a permissionless blockchain like Ethereum. They don't they don't want to just create Bitcoin, which is independent and permissionless. That's not what they want to do. So this, you know, to do a, a CBDC, central bank digital currency, it's going to be more involved. You know, you're going to have to have the, the government, the central bank, you know, figuring out, well, how are we going to manage this system? How is it going to be governed, overseen? What are the cybersecurity issues? So it's much more involved than just creating a cryptocurrency, which somebody could probably do in like 30 minutes. Right. So kind of building up on that, even though it seems quite easy to just simply make a cryptocurrency, well, how plausible would it be for um, adversaries like Venezuela who have not been able to, say, maintain a traditional um, stable currency to develop than a virtual currency that's also usable and stable and um, would be able to help them geopolitically? Not very, not very easy. Um, the, at least the, the part of your question which uh, said usable and stable. So it, yes, easy to deploy a crypto asset, a, a cryptocurrency. They actually, you know, they did that, although some might dispute like, was it really set up properly? But, you know, they set something up. But setting up a cryptocurrency does not necessarily mean that, one, it's going to be stable, or two, it's going to be um, sought after or and accepted by the rest of the international community. And that's where Venezuela really erred, you know, in, in their strategy. They created it, but they didn't create the incentives or they didn't create some, they didn't have stability like to make that currency, that cryptocurrency attractive. You know, who's going to purchase, who's going to buy or accept their Petro token? That's what it was called, the Petro. Who, 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 what country is going to accept the Petro for to pay for imports, uh, you know, coming from, from Venezuela, right? When you know it's not really valuable, you know that there are U.S. sanctions. They didn't, you know, they didn't address that issue. So to create a digital currency or a cryptocurrency by itself, it's not necessarily enough to to make a to make a dent in the you know in the international you know e uh, economic uh, landscape. It takes a, a lot more than just technology. So Yaya, now that we have a kind of basic overview of both CBDCs and crypto, and 
uh, I love the idea that we could create a Hopkins POFA coin. Maybe we should do that, Julia. But <laughs> I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could help our listeners or, or brief our listeners on China's attempts to make its own central bank digital currency. What does that process look like? How far along are they? And then we'll kind of get into the implications. Well, China is in the sort of late early stage of its research and development of a digital currency. I mean, China started back as early as 2014 uh, with researching digital currency. So it, it started to do that. And then uh, at some point, uh, maybe a couple of years later, uh, really declared that that the country, that the central bank, which is uh, the, the People's Bank of China, and they call it the PBOC, um, decided that they would come up with a national a fiat, uh, a digital fiat currency, or a, or a central bank digital currency. So since you know, since especially 20, you know, 2017, they created within the central bank like this whole unit to look at the research. They started conducting research, looking at cryptography, looking at blockchain, um, you know, or distributed ledger technology. Um, writing articles, academic articles. I went through all of this when I, when I did a research paper. You know, reading some of these articles from you know 2017, 2018, 2019, and they you know just basically did a lot of uh, theoretical development. Um, and then uh, in the past couple, you know two years or so. Uh, or past year, especially, started actually piloting this digital currency. So they actually have come up with some basic architecture. We don't understand all of it exactly how all it how it works, but we understand the basic um, you know basic way it's going to be managed. The central bank is going to create uh, this digital currency. Uh, it's called the ECNY. That's one of the terms uh, for it, and uh, they're going to distribute it to banks and financial institutions and then people users will have wallets with those banks but what's going to be held in those wallets will be the ecny the chinese digital currency and to go back to this point of well how is this different like i mean think about it in china people have been using all types of mobile payments you know even much more sophisticated than in the u.s they've been doing that for years so how is that different from you know we, the we uh, wechat and alipay and all these other mobile payments that already exist. And maybe here's a good way I could I could put it through to you. So if I have a WeChat wallet uh, on my phone and somebody else has an Alipay wallet, you can't pay those wallets directly. Just like how if you have a Venmo account, I can't send my Venmo money to your Cash App money or your PayPal to my Venmo, right? These are different systems. They're not interoperable directly because, like I said, it's really the system of these intermediaries that are uh, transacting, and they don't transact, you know, uh, seamlessly, you know, uh, one to the other. So, what the Chinese central bank has created is a system where the underlying infrastructure, the underlying um, unit or instrument, will be the central bank money. And so when you have a wallet, yeah, you might have a WeChat wallet, but now you have a WeChat wallet that has the Chinese digital currency as one of its uh, one of its um, uh, digital monies, you know, one of its offerings. So with that system, with this architecture, now theoretically, I could use my WeChat wallet, and I should be able to pay your um, Alipay wallet, but only in the Chinese um, central bank digital currency. 
So now, because the underlying architecture is what the central bank created, now you can build platforms around it so you can have real central bank money moving from application to application. And then the thing is, the underlying infrastructure is the Chinese government infrastructure. And and Yaya, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the motivations behind the creation of, of China's central bank digital currency. Um, in one of your recent reports, you said that one of those motivations was to informatize the economy. What does that really mean? So one of the key motivations for really the Chinese Communist Party as it has developed its vision for how it wants to operate in the economy of the future, one of the key areas of focus there is to have an economy and a uh, civil infrastructure that is really driven by data. So to informatize really means that you are building throughout the applications that are present in the government, but even in the commercial sector, the ability to use data, to be based on data, and to be connected to the internet. Because it's it's really by operating in the internet that all this new types of data gets um, gets used and leveraged. So China has this, this uh, national fintech plan, uh, fintech development plan, fintech meaning financial technology, and that plan includes in it, you know, even uh, wording like uh, the, the, the vision to create a national integrated data data center. And, and, and you see this happening in much of what um, the CCP, the, the Communist Chinese Party, is now doing to the fintech industry, reigning in the fintech industry, all these small, not small, they're large firms, all these big firms, which have been privately owned and have been doing a lot with data, data innovation. Now China is trying to uh, make sure that those companies provide the data to the state. So the central bank digital currency is part of that. It's an aim to, uh, to create financial, to have financial infrastructure where the data is now accessible to the state more easily in a more centralized way than you have with all these sort of private companies having their fintech platforms. It's a way to put the Chinese government's stamp, not even stamp, to put its influence into financial transactions in the company, I mean, in the country. And yeah, yeah I'm wondering, so that's interesting. One other thing that I read about, um, China's central bank digital currency. I, I believe it was from the Australia Institute of, I forget exactly their acronym, but ASPI. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Right. Australia Strategic <laughs> Policy Institute. Yes, yep. that one exactly. I had read that um, the their China's the way that they're kind of structuring their central bank digital currency could be used for a, a more like sinister purpose of um, being able to really very closely monitor the way that you know chinese citizens are um transacting and and it can be a very pervasive way of, of government oversight is that a kind of legitimate fear or do you think that's maybe overblown i don't think it's overblown i actually think it is a a feature of of what of of what the chinese government is doing i mean you have to remember that um even with the talk of privacy consumer privacy as it's being discussed in China. It's not like it is here where the discussion is about privacy from the government. It's, you know, maybe the discussion is privacy with other people not getting your data. But the government, you know, uh, asserts, believes that it has, you know, all the data that's happening, it should be under, it should be available to it 
so you, you know, yeah, the the you know, and even how you see the party, the the Chinese Communist Party, um, sort of almost market the digital currency. Uh, you know, especially late last year, what we noticed was that the party officials and the units in the government that deal with cracking down on party corruption, they basically said that this new digital currency would allow them to crack down. So, you know, because if you're paying government employees with this system, then it's easier to monitor their transactions. So maybe you can monitor corrupt payments or monitor the things that you think they shouldn't be doing. But, it, but I don't think it would be limited just to government officials um, because you still would have you still have a system where there's data that is available to the government, personal, you know, small financial transactions. Now, a lot of this may be anonymized. Uh, um, I think that's what they're saying now, that this data will be anonymized. But the government is still going to have access to the raw data and will be able to, you know, um, to unmask it. Uh, for for its own purposes. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it's overblown, especially if you understand just the way the Chinese government works, where it's a given that the government needs to have control over, you know, pretty much, you know, everything that's happening, um, everything that we're seeing now with um, the crackdown on private companies is a sign of that. It's really the government saying, look, you can't do just whatever you want to do. You are, um, you know, you have to make sure you're supporting, uh, supporting the government and all the data that you have, um, you know, is not your own. So kind of moving forward, um, there are several international and domestic institutions in different countries in place. And that ranges from, say, U.S. sanctions to SWIFT that guard against money laundering and terrorist financing risks. Um, but because these institutions were really designed and implemented in a world before cryptocurrencies and CBDCs were made popular, how has the emergence of cryptocurrencies affected the efficacy of these institutions? Well, I don't think that these institutions, especially, you know, let's take SWIFT, for example, which is a messaging system that you know banks use in order to send uh, to send uh, uh, wire transfers uh, and global transactions. I don't think that that system has been disrupted by cryptocurrencies, um, and it's really just a question of scope, right? With all the growth of crypto and uh, price tr- in price speculation, it's really still a pittance compared to the global financial system and all the. You know, you know, trillions of dollars of of, or, you know, of, of activity that, that happens. So I don't think I would say it directly has. I don't think there's been a much detrimental impact or, or anything like that, really. What I would say is that it has had maybe an outsized influence on these, these institutions in terms of uh, maybe philosophically, maybe in terms of what they're paying attention to and what they're concerned about. I think there is a concern about some disrupt about disruption, but there's also a concern. A lot of these institutions deal, it's not just, um, you know, dealing with profit. A lot of it is, you know, they deal with financial stability. They deal with uh, financial integrity. Like there are all these other responsibilities or, or concerns and objectives that these institutions have. And they do notice that cryptocurrencies are on the rise. They also notice that there are new innovations like stable coins, which are these things, you know, these you know, pr- global projects that are coming out that that have been a threat, well, you know, at least in, in, their, in their sense. And even the fact 
excuse me, and even the fact that these central banks are exploring CBDCs, you know, is due to the fact that they see, wow, there's this new technology that could um, that could maybe provide some benefits. Or some countries are of the position that they do see cryptocurrencies, um, they're, 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 they do see money, their regular money, losing out to cryptocurrencies in those economies that have you know, a lot of inflation problems. So they see capital flight. So those countries are concerned. But I'm not, I don't think it's really hit the, fin- the international financial institutions yet. It's just something that they're concerned about. But I don't think it's hindered them very much. So I guess kind of concentrating maybe more um, specifically on a digital renminbi or a Chinese digital currency, do you foresee that bringing new challenges to financial institutions um, in a way that's different from what we currently see with cryptocurrencies? Well, I would say that the challenge there or or the the, the implications are different in the short term and in the long term. Because really in the short term, like I was saying before, just creating a new currency, you know, a new digital currency, does not mean that it's gonna be uh, demanded or wanted, right, in the international community or for international trade. So in the short term, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, even the rollout of this, you know, of this digital, you know, RMB is is something that's taking time. It's not going to be, you know, going to gonna be like globally launched anytime soon. It's, it's going to be sort of in, in phases. And even that by itself doesn't change the calculus that the international community has when it comes to which currencies do they want to use, do they want to hold. Um, the, China has, there's still a lot of structural and political issues, so even stability issues that, um, that foreign, that you know, foreign counterparts uh, are going to factor when, when they consider, you know, oh, do they want to hold this digital RMB? Then there's a cybersecurity issue. Do you want to transact in something where all the data uh, potentially is going to, you know, all the data is going to the central, to the, to the central government? Um, so, so in the short term, I would say no, the, the order does not get upset by, by this. I think that there is a concern in the long term it's not just about like the, the the digital RMB competing with the dollar or being more attractive. That's actually not even it. In my mind, the big concern long term is that this digital RMB uh, would be just the sign of uh, a wave of innovation that is going to impact international payments, you know, cross border transactions, and that this system would in the long term, if it if other people buy into it, it would sort of be a reshaping. It would take away from SWIFT. If, if you don't need to go through the SWIFT system to do international transactions and you go through just CBDC to CBDC, right, between individual countries, then you do actually have an issue because the U.S., you know, the U.S. sort of uh, national security posture, national economic security posture depends on this, the, the, the sort of international system as it is. I mean, that's how um, in the U.S., that's how we deal with so many things, sanctions enforcement, um, uh, you know, so so having a different value transfer system would be a significant uh, reshaping of the geopolitical order if it happens in a way where the U.S. is is not a part of it or is less influential in that architecture. Yaya, you wrote in a previous report as well that 
Um, kind of in the same vein, there was a there was a person who was accused of um, attempting to help the North Korean regime kind of evade U.S. sanctions by using crypto. Um, but you wrote that wasn't a very effective strategy for helping North Koreans. But you you wrote that there was a way that you know people under repressive regimes like North Korea could be helped with with cryptocurrencies. Could you elaborate on that point you made? Yes, I mean. The point is that, you know, because you heard a lot of people, you know, some you know, this guy who was arrested for trying to, uh, you know, for allegedly providing, uh, helping North Korea with like cryptocurrency knowledge and blockchain or to potentially evade sanctions. Um, you know, a point there was that, the, you know, that's not the way to go about to help the people of North Korea who are really suffering under the, the North Korean regime. That if we think about cryptocurrencies, one of the you know, there are a couple of things that it can do is one of the things is that it does help with transferring funds um, and there's transparency to it. And so my sort of thesis was that, you know, if you really wanted to help the North Korea, maybe you could help with fundraising and doing it in a way where you use crypto to raise funds and to move funds and to keep account of where funds go. Because if you use crypto, you're basically you're using a platform where you can see how the money is being spent. And so, you know, it was sort of a call to people to think about, well, maybe, you know, not even just using crypto directly, but coming up with a, um, you know, coming up with a mechanism to fund nonprofits that are doing the work for the North Korean people that are trying to, you know, rescue people that are in, in, in bad situations or, or refu- you know, helping North Korean refugees, uh, that, that there are other ways to think about it. Because the thing is, though, because of all of the, the, the challenges when it comes to crypto, you, you ha- we have to think of ways where we can do it in what I would say a compliant way. So like if you're going to try to send money to North Korea, I don't recommend that you do that, right? Because you could, because you might think you're going to send it to some needy refugee or something and it ends up going to the, uh, uh, to the, to the Kim re- uh, regime. Uh, uh, so so the, the, what I was getting at there was, we need to think creatively about how we can, in a very lawful sort of way, in a compliant way, where you're staying on the right side of anti-money laundering and sanctions regulations, we use this technology to fundraise and to keep account. Because when you do most fundraising, there's very little transparency. How do you know how much you donated to some relief effort? How really do you know? I mean, I guess the audits that maybe can be done of that nonprofit but crypto could provide an effort, a way for you to actually see what happens to your tokens. Where do they go? How much of it is being spent? How could you track it? So that audibility is something that we could leverage potentially. I guess just to wrap us out for today, we always kind of like asking a forward-looking question at the end of our podcast. So for today, how should the United States and its allies react to China's ambitions with its central bank digital currency, and kind of how seriously should the United States be thinking about making its own central bank digital currency? And if it were to do so, would it because would it be because China is doing so, or because it's just maybe a good idea to make a CBDC anyways? Well, these are very two two separate questions, right? Because one on how to deal with China. I think the key thing, or at least what's the stance. I think the, the key international point to make, and the U.S. needs to be on target with this messaging, is just tell the truth about what about what this what this uh, 
the technical architecture it is. Because honestly, if you point out how this CBDC seems like it's going to work, it really poses some some serious problems for the foreign foreign uh, for the foreign community, particularly the foreign business community. I'll give you one particular potential example. Uh, a few months back, um, there was this European or Swedish clothing company uh, called H and M. I'm sure you, you, your listeners have heard of H and M, and you know they operate in uh, in China. And H and M had made a statement about uh, the the possibility of there being forced labor from the Xinjiang region, and they were concerned about that, and they posted it on their website. Well, the Chinese government did not like that at all, did not like that statement. It got circulated. And then what happened is that all these Chinese digital platforms started to pretty much uh, uh, sort of remove H&M from their platform, from like the search engine and from the commerce uh, site, even from geolocation apps. I mean, so if you would try to find H an H&M store on your, on your app, it would, it, it would not come up with any results. Or if you tried to use the Chinese version of Uber and go to, go to the store, it would say like invalid destination. So that was pretty much, and we can infer that that was the influence of the Chinese government saying, look, we are going to take you off of our platform if you say something that we don't like, foreign company. And so how does that relate to the digital currency? Well, it's just a sign of the sort of power that the government has over commerce. And so if you were to use, a foreign company were to operate in China, use this digital currency, have those digital currency wallets, it probably would be very easy for China at the flip of a switch to cut off your transactions, you know, to or to modulate your transactions, to like restrict your wallets in a way that it can't do as easily in our sort of disjointed financial system and fintech system today. So that's just one example of 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 the risk of using this current this technology, not just because of the technology itself, because hey, lots of countries are coming up with CBDCs. But the fact of the CCP and the the, um, the the you know the the control that it has over the economy and over the fintech sector, so there's a, a huge risk there, and I think that that needs to be understood. And the surveillance issue um, and the potential uh, crackdown on dissents that can happen more easily through this technology, all of that are just things that need to be highlighted because China downplays that. China tries to change the subject. Uh, on this issue, uh, you know, and so so that's something I think that, that needs to be um, understood. And then, you know, the, the final question, I guess, of the U.S. role, what should the U.S. do? And I'll, I will take, I'm sorry, I will, you know, I, I'm not going to break any news here because I, I, I'm not going to say yet whether or not the U.S. should create one. I mean, it, it's, it's, I think, just needs further study, further consideration. There are just a lot of strategic issues and even policy issues about how this would be designed. I think it's too soon to say. But the thing I will say, I won't cop out. I will say that I do believe, I do assess that CBDCs are going to be a part of the landscape. So the U.S. kind of actually needs to like get into the research more to extend what it's doing to like deepen the research on CBDCs, even if the U.S. isn't going to do anything, because 
While other nations are looking for CBDC models, China is actually influence a lot of, influencing a lot of this discussion because it has a lot of experience and expertise. So the U.S. is, even if it's not going to come up with a digital dollar, the U.S. needs to deepen its research in the technology. It needs to be at the same forums where China is discussing possible standards, discussing the research, and um, needs to sort of, uh, to really, I think, sort of lead the way so that this technology develops in a way which sort of aligns with in the interests of openness, free markets, you know, um, uh, and those sort of principles that the U.S. that the U.S. upholds. Yeah, yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for asking, and I'm happy to do it. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. <laughs>